Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Did you get your palm on the way in? Let's see it. Wave it if you got it there. Wave your palm. If you didn't get one, raise your hand. Say, give me a palm, okay? Just the, uh, the ushers in the back. Make sure people got one of those if you would. Um, when I was a boy growing up in church, you get these on Palm Sunday, and I remember we, my, my friends and I would get them after the service, and we'd like have these sword fights, kind of whip each other. So very, very, uh, very positive. But the palm is actually a very important symbol, and it may be actually today you're going to learn a little something that you probably didn't know, and they didn't tell you growing up, that actually this is a very political symbol about what happened in that Palestine in that ancient day 2,000 years ago when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, You might be surprised to learn the palm branch is actually a political symbol. And the events of that day, although a lot of spiritual significance, we're going to get into that, it was loaded with all the drama of a high-stakes political campaign. And so this afternoon, I want to talk to you about the politics of Palm Sunday. And this is good timing because we're in the middle of this primary season, a pretty exciting race for the presidency. And unless you've had your head in the sand, you know right now you're familiar with kind of the three candidates who are out there. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the right, you have John McCain, right, who kind of is the standard bearer now for the Republican Party. He wrapped up the nomination. He's kind of this decorated veteran, 72 years old. He'll actually be the oldest president to go into office if elected. Uh, known primarily for his support of the war in Iraq. He's kind of, a, kind of an economic conservative, socially a little bit more moderate. But on the Democratic side, you actually have, have two candidates who are still in kind of this neck-and-neck race for the nomination. First, you have Hillary, of course, the well-known senator from New York. And she's like, I am the chief executive who could take office on day one. First woman president. So that would make Bill like the first gentleman. Uh, and she is very popular among women, promises things like health care for everyone, education upgrades, etc., But maybe the most exciting candidate of all three, if you didn't see this one coming, uh, the senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. Now, he's only been in... Okay. Thank you. Um, Only a couple years, actually, in the Senate, but his youth is kind of overshadowed by a lot of passion among his younger uh, kind of fan base. Actually, a lot of younger people who haven't been involved in in voting actually have been throwing this because he has a real hopeful and optimistic campaign. It's kind of, yes, we can. That's his thing. Si se puede, right? And uh, he could be the first African-American president. He has a lot of crossover Republicans. They're calling them Obamacans. And, uh, and he's a brilliant speaker. You've likely, they actually had pictures or, or, or video this week on YouTube of some of his supporters fainting last week at his rally, at, not out of exhaustion because they were like, oh, Obama. He's a bit of a phenomena. Uh, he's leading in states, total delegates, and, and, and really kind of transcending. He's like, I do politics differently. No personal attacks, very civil. Now, just out of curiosity, I know what you're going to do there, but who would you be most likely to vote for if you had to vote today, if the election were held today, of those three? Now, we're going to do something kind of fun, a little risky. We're actually going to take a straw vote this afternoon. In your Bible, take out your Bible, yeah, in your seat. Open the front cover, and you will see your very own fake ballot, okay? And again, this is totally anonymous. Obviously, it's not binding. But as the three candidates listed, we're going to take a quick informal survey here to see where this service is at. I'll tell you where the morning ones came in. But who are you most likely, at this moment, to vote for for president? And again, totally anonymous, but you can only check one. So there's no hedging your bets. can't be like, well, this one or this one, I'll see. And then look what it says. It says, in one sentence, word, or phrase, why? So like if, you know, if you're like, you know, check McCain and say, well, you know, he's strong in defense, you know, something like that. Or, or Obama, I like his, you know, message of hope. Or, or you know, Hillary, you know, I, I like witches. Whatever you, just say, I'm sorry. 
I, I totally... <laughs> it's been a long day. A lot of coffee now going on here. Uh, but whatever it is, all right, you just write that in there. We're just trying to get sense. And then fold it over. Go ahead, fold it over. No one gets to see. Pass it to the center aisle. And our ushers are going to come down. They're going to collect them. And then Lauren's going to tell us the results in a little bit. And again, this, this doesn't count for anything. Do you see what it says at the bottom? Did everyone read the disclaimer? It says, Liquid Church does not officially endorse nor promote any political party or candidate. This fake poll is for illustrative purposes only, so chill out, okay? That's like our official disclaimer. This isn't about like supporting a certain candidate, all right? But uh, ushers, come down, collect those. Whether you are a Democrat or you're a Republican or you're an independent, one thing is for sure. Faith is a factor in this political campaign. Uh, In fact, it's interesting, but each of these political candidates has gone out of his or her way uh, to let their nation know that Jesus actually is on their side. Uh, Last week, the World Net Daily came this headline, Hillary, I've felt the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting. Look, Senator believes in resurrection. Not sure Jesus is the only way. Uh, Clinton declared, I believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have felt the presence of the Holy Spirit on many occasions in my years on this earth. And then the reporter asked her, uh, theologically, do you believe the resurrection historically happened? And Clinton said, yes, I do. And then she went on to say that she's not sure Jesus is the only way to heaven, though. So she's hedging a little bit, doesn't want to seem intolerant, but, but apparently Hillary is on board with Jesus. Uh, as is Obama. Contrary to a lot of the rumors that, well, I think you know, maybe he's secretly a Muslim, Obama is actually quite outspoken about his faith in Jesus Christ. Check this out. A recent interview with Christianity Today, he said this, I am a Christian, a devout one. I believe in the redemptive death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that that faith gives me a path to be cleansed of sin and have eternal life. But most importantly, I believe in the example that Jesus set by feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and always prioritizing the least of these over the powerful. I didn't fall out in church, as they say, but there was a very strong awakening in me of the importance of these issues in my life. Accepting Jesus Christ in my life has been a powerful guide for my conduct and my values and ideals. Interesting confession especially from a guy a lot of evangelicals consider like a you know, classic kind of liberal. And a, a, lot of his, a lot of his support base so strongly believe in his potential to kind of heal our nation that they've begun comparing him actually to Christ. Check out this sculpture. This is from the Chicago Art School. Uh, kind of controversy right now out there, depicting Obama as Jesus with a neon halo. Uh, but, you know, Obama would say, hey, Jesus on my side. Now, McCain is a little bit more cagey. Uh, this, he's an independent. This, this week, we, all we could find, the best we could find was an ABC News report that, that when he was campaigning down in Carolinas, it had this headline. It said, um, McCain says he's been Baptist for years. Uh, grew up Episcopalian, but he's like, no, I'm kind of Baptist. So the people in Carolina are like, oh, okay, now, good. And um, interesting, it said, they said, well, what role does faith play in your everyday life? And he said, well, do I advertise my faith? No. Do I talk about it all the time? No. And maybe that's the way some of you prefer to see it. In fact, public politics is very separate from your private faith. You know, that's the the whole separation of church and state argument. But whatever your personal conviction is this morning, one thing is very clear. Our nation likes to mix the two, right? Politics and religion, religion and politics, they just seem to go together. And around campaign time, it is no secret. People like to attach Jesus to their agenda, Whatever you're leaning, whether you're left or right, it's nice to be able to say, well, one thing's for sure, God is on our side. Um, now, that's the way uh, it, Palm Sunday, quite honestly, is one of the more fascinating episodes in the Bible. And again, something hopefully you'll learn today that uh, you, you weren't aware of. Because Palm Sunday was the ultimate mixing of religion and politics. 
Not that Jesus was campaigning for anything at all, any means, but there were a lot of people in the crowd that day as he entered Jerusalem, a lot of religious leaders and a lot of political power players who had wanted to attach their agenda to this Jesus guy. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you take out your Bible, just turn with me real quick to John 11. It's on page 747. You're going to find some interesting things here. A little background to this, which um, we're doing this kind of prepare our hearts to lead up to Easter next week, Resurrection Sunday. For the, the, the re, the, the, we don't want to lose sight of the reasons why Jesus really came to this earth, which was not about squashing his opponents, nor winning, quite honestly, a popularity contest, but actually dying for his enemies. So let's start at John 11.45. It's under that heading, The Plot to Kill Jesus, and that's a little foreshadowing that politics can be a dangerous business. It says, Therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So at this point in his ministry, Jesus was a very public figure. He was kind of blowing up. He was, you know, exploding in popularity. And so you have this guy who, who is a, an ordinary man, appears, blue-collar carpenter from Nazareth. But um, he's claiming to be the Son of God, and he's doing some impressive things. He has restored sight for blind people. And just prior to this, he's raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. That's the account. And a lot of people are starting to, to actually say, well, who is this guy? And they're starting to put their faith in him. Specifically, the Jewish people are starting to believe he's the long-awaited Messiah or, the, or the, the promised one, promised by the prophets, who would literally save them. And that's significant because the Jewish people at this point in time were in need of saving. Politically, economically, they were an oppressed people. Israel was actually occupied territory, just like it is uh, in many ways today in the Middle East, but occupied at that point by anyone know what, what, what uh, power? Rome. Excellent. Well, look at you guys, history. Israel was occupied by Rome, and they had a very tense relationship with them. Rome gave partial freedom to Jews as long as they were loyal to who? Caesar. As long as they stayed quiet and obedient, no waves. So as this account opens, there's this growing sense among the people that maybe Jesus is the political solution to all of our national troubles. He, maybe he is our savior from Roman rule. And if he was, that's going to cause all sorts of problems, though, because maybe there'll be an insurrection, maybe there'll be violence, and then Rome will mobilize their army, and they're going to crush the Jewish people. So what happens? Watch this. Time for a little backroom politics. Verse 47. It says, what are, or it says um, oh, sorry, the, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. That was literally like the Supreme Court. They were the Supreme Council ruling over all Israel. But now, the, the literal political power players, okay? The Sanhedrin was made up of the judicial, executive, and legislative bodies in Israel. In other words, it managed all of Israel's internal affairs, but was under Roman rule. So it's this perfect mix of religious leaders with political power. And they had this cozy relationship with Rome, and Jesus presented a problem to that. Now watch this, what it says. It says, what are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then what will happen? The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And already you hear the insecurity and the fear in their voice. We can't let Jesus mess up our cozy relationship with Caesar, okay? We got to preserve our power, our position at all costs. See, they, they believe that if people start following Jesus, it's going to create this disturbance. The Romans will clamp down and they'd start with the Sanhedrin, dismantle that, tear down the temple, everything. So you have, in essence, on Palm Sunday, this is right before Palm Sunday, these religious leaders who are desperate to preserve their political power at all costs. 
So different from today, isn't it? <laughs> In essence, on the eve of Palm Sunday, there's this background, backroom political maneuvering going on. What to do with Jesus? He's stirring up trouble. And although these guys are high priests, they're religious leaders, they're like, we've got to come up with a politically viable solution. Here it is in verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You guys know nothing at all. You don't realize that it's better for us that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas was a religious leader of the Sadducees. They were the most educated and wealthy group and the most politically influential in the entire nation. And as this kind of elite group, they were actually on fairly good terms with Rome and they hated Jesus because he endangered their secure lifestyle. And he was teaching this message. They had a hard time accepting that like actually true leaders served. It had no appeal to them. And it's interesting because that's how politics works, doesn't it? I mean, if you like politics, that is awesome. A lot of people enter with a very noble desire to serve the public good. But somewhere along the way, as they amass power and wealth and influence, all of a sudden the position, protecting that position becomes the point. And it becomes about wielding power or maintaining that privileged position at all costs. So this is power politics. And in the worst cases, as you're going to see here, it causes leaders, even those who hold deep spiritual convictions, to make politically expedient decisions, such as choosing one man as the fall guy in order to save your own party. And this is literally what Caiaphas suggests. Look what he says. You don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. You guys know this. Whenever there's a political crisis or fallout in Washington, every politician knows someone's got to pay. You saw it this week with Elliot Spitzer, right? Even, even when the offense isn't so blatant, leaders will sometimes offer up a sacrificial lamb to save the party. Uh, you might have seen in the, uh, the Hillary Clinton's camp, I think it was Geraldine Ferraro had to resign this week. She had made some, some comments that could be interpreted as racist towards Obama. It was kind of controversial. So she stepped down. Why? Political reality. It is better that one woman step down than the whole campaign tank. And that kind of political pragmatism is nothing new. It goes all the way back to Caiaphas, who saw this threat that Jesus poses to political power. And he's like, well, guys, better one guy dies than our whole organization go down the tubes. He's a realist. And so you see this political backroom maneuvering that's happening here in John 11. You have this perfect blurring of religion and politics, a very cutthroat pragmatism, and it leads to really the politics of personal destruction. I mean, you've heard that phrase before. It's coined in the 90s, but really it's when a candidate is viewed as such a threat that opponents have no choice but to attack him personally. Now, in modern politics, that involves usually like kind of innuendo or smear their character, attack them that way. But in Jesus' case, the Sanhedrin went one further. Verse 53 says bluntly, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And this is the political process that kicked off this Passion Week leading up to Easter. As Jesus made his way into Jerusalem the weekend before Easter. See, this was a time of the Passover feast, and Jerusalem, normal population of Jerusalem is about 100,000 people at the time. It swelled to over 1 million pilgrims at that moment to celebrate. And in many ways, it was like one of the most supercharged political rallies you've ever witnessed. Now, look with me at this account on John 12, 12, okay? Under triumphal entry, it says, The next day, that great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches. Everyone put their palm branches up. Got them? All right, let's get them up. And they went out to meet him, shouting what? 
Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. This is very, very interesting here because, um, well, anyone know what kind of palm branches these were? These were not like Hawaiian coconut tree palm branches they had there. These were date palms. And in the Middle East, date palms were extremely significant, a very potent political symbol. See, palms were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Any occupied country, you know this, think of the Middle East today. There's always a strong undercurrent of insurgents when it is an occupied territory. And in this case, Jewish zealots resented the occupying power. Rome, we want them out of here. And they were crying out for a leader who was going to rally the Jewish people, the zealots, and drive out Rome. They wanted a strong man a political hero who'd restore their nation to its former glory and independence. So this crowd, get your palms out, is literally waving their palms as Jesus enters. And this is a political statement. Judas was one of the zealots. He was privately hoping Jesus would be the one to begin the insurrection. So it's just like this political rally in Jerusalem. Imagine those doors open in the back. Smoke comes out. Here comes Jesus. Everyone gets their palms out and they're waving them like this. And instead of, you know, Obama 08 signs, they're like Jesus 00 or whatever that would be. Uh, And that's what the crowd is saying. Yeah, I, I honestly, I grew up, and you tend to think that Palm Sunday was this kind of nice little, oh, yay, you know, let's wave palms, Jesus, yay. Not so much. The crowd was calling for something very much darker. They were, they were stating their hopes that Jesus, a new political liberator, has arrived. A strong man, a Che Guevara, if you will, who's going to unite the masses and lead this military revolution. Now, check this out. What do they shout as Jesus comes into the city? What's the word? Ho. Zana. Now look at your footnote there. It is a Hebrew exclamation. It's not even a title. It's a verb. Save. But it's better translated as save us now. In other words, it's more of a demand. So as Jesus enters, you literally have hundreds of thousands of people waving their palm branches, chanting, save us now. Save us now. They have big plans for Jesus. And they call him the king of what? Israel, the highest office in the land, political overtones. In other words, we are hailing this man because he is the one. He is our candidate. He is the chosen one who's going to bring the political change we want to see in the world. Who will finally leave this uh, revolution. He's going to trample all of our enemies. He's going to drive out Rome and restore our power and our prestige. Crown him king. Vote for Jesus. Vote for Jesus. That's literally what the crowd is saying on Palm Sunday. The problem was that they hadn't yet heard one little disclaimer that Jesus made in his own platform. See, this candidate never promised a political victory. Rather, in John 18, 36, he said this, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. You want to know another word for kingdom? Government. It's a very important distinction. Because when it comes to the kind of faith that God invites us to put in him, There's a very big difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, the government of man. The way that works is one party wins and then rules over the other party. And then that party takes all their efforts to try to cut the legs out from under that ruling party. The kingdom of God doesn't offer political change. It offers spiritual renewal. One is about preserving power and position at all costs, and the other advances actually through humility and service. Most significantly, the contrast is how they treat their enemies because the kingdom of man, one, 
seeks to destroy their enemies, and the other dies for them. See, all this muscular palm waving on that day was a case of mistaken identity. All along, Jesus had been been teaching that God's power is not in his muscle and will to rule, but his radical love, loving one's enemies, actually not crushing one's opponents, but in laying down one's life for them. And as you might guess, this is not a popular strategy for a campaign. It is not a tactic we naturally take when we're convinced God's in our corner. See, when you begin marrying power politics with religion, when you begin appropriating, Jesus, get on board with my agenda, one of the dangers is that you can actually betray the very principles of the kingdom of God. I got a a letter in the mail recently. It was actually from a Christian organization, and they were soliciting support for the ongoing culture war. That's what it said. Save our our culture. And among other things, it mentioned, it was very interesting, the language it used. talked about rallying the troops to oppose, and then it had a list. Abortion, gay rights, immigration, had a whole list. And the mailer was red, white, and blue, and in the middle of this big cross smack dab in the center. And he used all this kind of warlike language about the political battle for hearts and minds of America, about we're going to reclaim the nation for Christ. And then you flipped on the back, and and then it had, you know, more points about lower taxes and the right to bear arms and smaller government, which is kind of interesting. But it then it pointed the finger. It said, help us defeat the real problem in our country, which they identified with capital LL, the liberal left. That's how we set it up, right? It's the religious right or the liberal left. You've got to pick your party. And what you have to do is not only say, well, we're in the right, but you have to, you're forced to denounce the other and blame them for all the injustice and wrong you see in the world. And you basically have to turn your palm into a sword and cut out their legs. Well, it's the liberal left's doing. That's why the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Hillary and her ilk want to create a welfare state. No, no, no. It's the religious right. Bush was born again, and he led us into a war. He's not a peacemaker. We need someone who'll be a peacemaker and restore our reputation around the world. Save us, Obama. Or no, protect us, McCain. He's inexperienced. That's how politics does it. You polarize things, and you denounce and destroy your enemies. Interestingly enough, well, wow, this is interesting. All you mechaniacs here. That, that's, that's the winner. A lot of conservatives here. That's very interesting. And now some of you are like, oh my gosh, no, that's four more years of war, even more. Da, da, da. And you're getting upset because you're like, this is, wow, this is a real scientific poll. Someone checked Obama and they said, one sentence, word or phrase, why? Cool name. <laughs> Your vote is revoked. That's terrible. That's, that's terrible. We get very upset because we are so confident that God is on our side, and that if it were up to him, he would want us to cut the legs out from underneath our enemy and rise to power, because that's how politics works, the kingdom of man. And the goal is always to eliminate the the group that we see as being the real problem. The Sanhedrin was like, Jesus is the problem, eliminate Jesus. The crowd's like, it's Rome, eliminate Caesar. When I was a kid, as I said, we we celebrate Palm Sunday. My friends and I, we'd, we'd collect all the leftover palms. We'd go behind the educational building and whiff each other and, 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 and have these sword fights. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly the spirit in which this crowd was waving their palm branches at Jesus that day, hoping that he would be the one to finally turn these into swords, God's sword, and bring this terrible sharpened blade down in the necks they believe were the source of suffering in the world. But that's how God's going to fix things by flexing his muscle and and might to fit my agenda. And if we're honest, we have to admit this. Although our context is different, I mean, a 21st century democracy versus a first century empire, the temptation is the same. 
you denounce and you demonize your opponent. No, it's the left. No, it's the right. It's the gays. It's the fundamentalists. And then you try to enlist Jesus to support your agenda. Now, don't hear me wrong on this. Politics can start out good. If you're into, you have a passion for politics, that is awesome. That can often flow out of a genuine desire. You want to see the world change for the better. But it's ultimately limited for two reasons. One, we're fatally flawed as people. We don't have a great track record of handling power very well, do we? You saw that this week with the governor of New York. And, that, and that's a no slam on an Elliot Spitzer. We are all capable of the same. We're a bag of mixed motives, all of us. But most importantly, Jesus showed us that what the crowd wants, Jesus, is very different from what the cross demands. See, Jesus knew a secret as he rode into the crowd that day that wouldn't be political muscle, but it'd be sacrificial love that has the power to change the human heart one by one by one. Again, God's ways are not our ways. And the message of Easter, one week later, is that God's plan for changing the world actually did not involve cutting down his enemies, but what? Dying in their place. That's the real miscalculation on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. They thought politics would save the world, whereas Christ was coming to die for it. Jesus walked out the same road he came in Jerusalem one week later. And instead of saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the same exact crowd chanted what? Crucify him, crucify him, because he didn't live up to their expectations. Imagine him looking at the faces of the crowd. These were the same people. Seven days earlier, were waving palm branches as he entered, saying, Hosanna, you're the one. You're going to do it for us. You will meet all of our political ambitions. And now they were throwing rocks and spitting and jeering. Hold up your branches one week later. They say politics is a, a blood sport. Only Jesus knew the depth of that reality. Politics is a fickle business, isn't it? The crowd says salvation comes through power. We want a muscular savior. And the cross says salvation comes through Christ alone, a suffering servant. See, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be crowned a very different kind of king, a candidate who dies for his opponents not dismantles them, who conquers the heart through sacrifice and love, not power and privilege. This is a symbol of doing things the crowd's way. When someone hurts you or they get in your way, you attack them, you cut them off at the knees. And so many times in life, we go along with the crowd, all the while believing we're on the same page as God. It could be political, right, where you're convinced, Jesus, I'm bored with my issues. And anyone who opposes these must be the enemy. We stake our passion and then our position then enlist Jesus. Or it could be personal. It doesn't even have to be political. You know this. When someone hurts or attacks you, it could be an ex, it could be a coworker, it could be a friend. Maybe it's someone you've had a fallout with, right, or been wronged by, and you're praying, God, you've got to set them straight because Jesus is on my side. And really, are you sure? See, folks, when, when God enters a contest, a squabble, he doesn't come to take sides, he comes to take over. And the way he brings lasting peace is not with a, a sharpened palm, but with palms that get pierced by nails. Why were these people in Jerusalem to begin with? They were there to celebrate what? Passover. 
the Jewish feast that remembered God's deliverance of his people from Israel. And that week, when Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, we're told that he took the Passover bread and said, this has special meaning. This bread is my body, and it will be broken for you. This cup, this wine is my blood, which is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of mankind's sins, not just your sins, everyone's sins. The palm is a symbol of you and I, the crowd, trying to get Jesus to identify with our cause, and the cross is Jesus inviting us to identify with his. So the question before us on Palm Sunday is this. Do you identify more with the crowd or the cross? Passover meal, communion, that week, the first time he instituted that with his disciples. He was saying, I'm talking about a spiritual salvation, 
not just a political one. True salvation comes not through cutthroat politics, but personal sacrifice of the highest cost. That's what communion is. It is literally God inviting us to identify with his agenda and way of changing the world, not the other way around. When we clash with our enemies, we're invited actually to die for them. Most people didn't notice it, but Jesus was making a political statement of his own when he entered Jerusalem. They had palm branches and were sending a message, and Jesus was sending another message based on his mode of transportation. What was he riding in? Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it's written, Don't be afraid. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. What was significant about Jesus riding in on a donkey? No, he's not a Democrat, no. (laughs) In those days, Roman tradition dictated that a triumphant, conquering hero enter any capital on a white stallion with a chariot armed for war with trumpets and a retinue of soldiers for dramatic effect. And Jesus comes in riding what? A beast of burden. A humble animal that carries the burdens of others and he's making a powerful statement about how he's going to bring lasting salvation to the world because on Palm Sunday, a beast of burden carries Jesus in. On Good Friday, Jesus literally becomes our beast of burden carrying our sins, the weight of our trespasses against God, against one another. And you get the divine symbolism, I hope. Jesus has come to save the world, not as a powerful politico, but as a suffering servant. This is not popular as a political strategy. Who allows themselves to be crucified so that others can grasp the depth of the mercy and forgiveness of God? Yet we're told it's the basis of our eternal salvation. John 3.17 explains Jesus' mission this way. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That is how you become a Christian. That is how you become a follower of Christ. You put your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus for your brokenness, your failings, all the ways you've tried to actually get him to conform to fit your agenda and likeness while he invites us to the table to fit his. See, folks, God does have an agenda. And you know what his agenda is? The salvation of the whole world. Both liberals and conservatives, Americans and Iraqis, gays and straights, evangelicals and Episcopalians. He transcends politics. He transcends personal grudges. He transcends party lines. And he offers us simply himself. That's the meaning of Palm Sunday. And I wonder if I would have missed it. The account closes with this detail in verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The disciples didn't get it at first. They missed what Jesus was trying to do, save the entire world spiritually, not just a nation politically. And only after Easter, after they saw him pinned to a cross in an empty tomb, did they realize the power of love to change human hearts one by one by one. Only then did they realize Palm Sunday politics and that they had done these things to him. I wonder, for us, how, how has each of us, even here today, just gone along kind of with the crowd, just misunderstanding Jesus, assumed he was on our side, or used him to beat up our enemies, 
when the reality is Jesus doesn't come into our lives to take sides. He comes to take over. We're not at all. He invites us to reject the crowd's version of victory and adopt his platform. Love, forgiveness, sacrifice, grace. Loving one's enemies when they actually deserve it least. That's what that communion table is. As you come forward in a moment to the Passover table, the Eucharist, it is open for every man and woman here who has made the decision to follow Jesus, who actually comes to God in humility, not, not self-pride, admitting our sins and our need for actually a real Savior. And when you partake of these elements, you're pledging your commitment to actually follow in the way of Jesus, not a party. To not only find salvation in the sacrifice, but to be willing to sacrifice your life for God's kingdom, the government of God. And as a symbol of that commitment, we want to invite you up here actually with your palm frond. I'm going to invite you to do two things right now. One, to actually tear it in half. I want you to keep half for yourself. Take that with you as a reminder. But bring that other half forward with you. And you drop it at the foot of the communion table as a way of saying, you know, I don't want to go along with just the crowd anymore. God, I don't want to invite you to fit my agenda. I want to serve yours. I want, to serve, I want us to receive your love and forgiveness. I need the strength to sacrifice for others the way you did. In a moment, we're going to start with the first couple rows here, and we're going to have two lines forming down the middle. And when you come forward, here's what you're going to do. You're going to come down that center aisle, and you can drop your palm branch. Again, if that is in your heart, and you will take the bread, and you will dip it, in the grape juice as a way of identifying with the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ. You can receive it here. Then return to your seat up the side aisle. And if you're not, if you, I need to say this, if you're not there yet, totally okay. If you have not made the personal decision to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, no pressure. Do not feel weird. Don't feel pressured to participate. In fact, just come forward with everyone else. When it comes your turn, you can simply walk through the line, and, and that's totally cool. You are a guest. We are just thrilled that you are here. But we're going to take a moment for silent prayer before God. You talk to God, and then begin with the first rows down the center aisle. Republicans, Democrats, none of the above. You come together, even supporters of Ron Paul. Come down, and you pledge yourself to Christ, Okay. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much that you transcend politics in our world. And that you came down to this earth to bring your kingdom here. God, we pledge our allegiance to your kingdom. Lord, where we've given our hearts, Lord, to, um, to our own agendas, to parties, to nations, to 
man-made things, Father. We, we ask you in this communion moment, Father, to reorient our hearts towards you. Make us hungry, Father, for the kingdom of God to come, for justice, for, for righteousness, Father. But start with us, our hearts, God. Renew them and wash them as we come forward to your table and use us as instruments of your grace in this world. In Jesus' name we pray.